Layman's is proud to sponsor Self-Sufficient Life. From time-tested garden tools to nostalgic homestead decor, Layman's can help you enjoy the self-sufficient life. Find Layman's online at L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com. So what would cause a trained scientist and big pharma executive to sell everything he owns and move to the country? Hey, it's Tim Young of the TheSelfSufficientLife.com. Today, I'll share the story of not a mad scientist, but a scientist who got mad when he discovered we're on a crash course with economic collapse. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, I sat in a conference room with a reporter and his cameraman. He was interviewing me for a local business segment in Boston. I remember trying to get through the interview quickly because I was booked on a flight two hours later from Logan Airport to Silicon Valley. Everything in my life back then was quick, always rushing, always scurrying to see a client or fly to see employees throughout the U.S. and Europe. As the reporter asked me a question, I heard the gasp from the hallway behind me. And 750 miles to the west, Chris Martinson was sipping coffee in a conference room when he heard the same gas. I was out in Ann Arbor, Michigan at a, at a Pfizer um, research facility out there doing what I do. What Chris did was consulting to the big pharma industry. Being in Ann Arbor put him 800 miles from his home in Mystic, Connecticut, where his wife, Becca, was alone with her three young children. And Chris desperately tried to reach her. Communications were hard. Uh, the cell phones were, the towers were all jammed up. I mean, it just was, uh, it was tricky getting a hold of Becca. We didn't know anything at that point. We didn't know if roads were open or closed or what was happening. Chris had to figure out how to get home, of course, but planes were out of the question and rental cars were snapped up instantly. The sprawling Pfizer facility in Ann Arbor was a whirlwind with everyone desperately looking for answers, as we all were at the time. I mean, none of us knew what was going on. Remember? It was surreal. Like, did that plane really fly into the World Trade Center? And then another? Did I just see that? While everyone became glued to the television sets, Chris caught wind that some sort of transportation was in the works. The Ann Arbor Research Facility is big and giant and sprawling, and it was all I could do to sort of catch the vibe that there was a bus somewhere and figure out how to get on it. He did get on that bus and eventually made contact with Becca. I remember on that first call with my wife Becca, I think I said stuff like, just go to the store and get extra. We had infants at that point in time. You know, go to the store, get extra baby food and get diapers and get some money out of the bank. I mean, there was just sort of like, go get some stuff. We all remember 9-11, of course. I mean, it was a horrific, horrific day and time. But people have a way of moving on and, if not forgetting, at least getting their lives back to normal. I fear that's what happened to most of the country. Events happen, 9-11, the Great Recession or whatever. It's endured, has an impact, and then people move on and almost seem to forget. And then there are those who are forever changed by these events. Whether it's an act of terrorism or a financial crisis, the events jolt some of us out of our comfort zone and has a life-altering impact on how we think and what we think. He didn't even know it at the time. I'm not sure he knows it now. But 9-11 was the first seed of doubt planted in Chris Martinson's fertile mind. I wasn't quite as clued in as I as I am now about what that might have really signified. It was just this big shocking event. I was just I was fully in the fold of of uh, culture at that point in time. So I was just in the same shock everybody else was. And um, I, I would have a very different perspective on it all now. Obviously, this does have a very different worldview today. And we'll get to that soon enough. But first, 
Let's backtrack to better understand how Chris's background shaped who he would ultimately become. I grew up in Mansfield Center, Connecticut, which is near Storrs, Connecticut, so kind of rural. I think my nickname was Nature Boy. I was always outside. I found the outside fascinating. Uh, it was hard to get me to come back in, even for dinner. I was always dirty, uh, worms in my pocket, uh, knew where every living thing could be found outside. I was a nut for fishing. But Nature Boy was also Brainy Boy, so much so that he couldn't wait to start college. I was at Simon's Rock Early College for two years, started that at 16. Yeah, Simon's Rock is a four-year liberal arts college located in Great Barrington. That's in western Massachusetts, in the Berkshires region. Actually, it's an early college for students to enroll immediately after completing the 10th grade, or when they're about 16. That's how old Chris was when he enrolled. As for me, well, I remember hiding beer in the creek on the golf course when I was about that age. That way, when my high school golf team got out to the sixth hole, I could have some refreshment. So, yeah, I'm thinking that Chris was smarter than I was, because even after Simon Rock, it seems he couldn't get enough schooling. I was on a traveling school for a couple of years, and then, make a long story endless, uh, I needed a final year of, of college at a residential college, so I did that at Lewis and Clark College. That's where I took my first honest-to-God science course. It was Intro to Biology, something a freshman should take. And that was it. That was that moment when Chris figured out what he really loved. He had a mind for data, for science, for uncovering and understanding the truth of how things really work. I immediately dropped all my other coursework and, and just loaded up on every science course I could. And uh, from there, made the decision because I had been teaching at, at various levels that I wanted to teach at the secondary level, needed a PhD, had to take uh, the tests to, to see what kind of a course I could get into and, and um, ended up uh, being uh, 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 courted by Duke. And that's where I went and got my PhD and did my postdoc there. Chris developed a passion for science, and he had the brain for it. He'd write those papers, you know, those kind of science papers you hear about on NPR or in science and medical journals with all that jargon and words that normal people can't pronounce. Yeah, Chris was one of those guys. Like with this research paper I uncovered at Chris wrote. The effect of acrylamide and other sulfhydryl alkylators on the ability of dynein and kinesin to translocate microtubules in vitro. Chronic I tell exposure you, to I don't understand a word that boy just said. Remember, I'm the guy who hit the beers in the creek. But Chris understood it and went on to get his PhD because he wanted to teach at the university level. But he ran into a problem. He cared more about the teaching part of the job than the universities did. Than the anterior grade direction. Let's be clear, research universities could care less whether you're a, a, a great teacher or a, or a bad one. They care about the, the grant money you bring in. And so teaching is not even it's not even really on the tick list of things they consider when they're considering tenure. Yeah, well, just go to a small college then that does value teaching. There you discover they don't actually have any money to pay you. Aye, aye, aye. Well, that left Chris with a difficult choice. The one we're all faced with early on in life. Do what you love or do what pays the bills. So Chris continued his formal education until he was about 30. He went on to earn his MBA from Cornell and... Ultimately, I turned away and decided to go into business. Business it is. And that love of science and, let's all be honest, the need for all of us to make some money is what finally led Chris to Big Pharma. I was working for a company called SAIC, that's Science Applications International Corps. At the time I left it, it was about 40,000 people worldwide. My side was Life Sciences Division, and it was a really interesting company to work for because it was, you know, hunt it, kill it, eat it. 
The phrases hunt it, kill it, eat it may have been in reference to the work the company did, mainly as a big military industrial defense contractor, but those words often permeate big business cultures, particularly when it comes to financial performance and earning bonuses. They would zero out your books on each division at the end of the year, and they constantly wanted you to keep exceeding whatever sales you had done last year, and there was no carryover. Like in your division, you couldn't build up any retained earnings. Um, all got zeroed out, and every year was a fresh year. So kind of cool, Darwinistic, you know, um, and, and they rewarded you well, but if you fell to the bottom of the, of the pile, you would get culled pretty quickly. It's all a game in business, but it's a serious game because we're talking about money and everyone takes money seriously, especially CEOs and shareholders. So Chris learned how to play the game. I played the game right, got a PhD, got an MBA, worked my way up to vice president, put in the long hours, had a bunch of people body shopping under me, you know, earned big money, did all of that, had the house, um, waterfront house, Mystic, Connecticut, a boat just, you know, a mile away. Uh, everything was going right. Sure sounds like it. Waterfront home, big boat, bigger paycheck, and a nice portfolio of investments. What we all dream about, right? So what could happen? All of a sudden, pretty much 40% of my total net worth just got shredded from 2000 to 2001. Yikes. That was just after the dot-com crash. If you don't remember that time, the dot-com bubble, or the internet bubble, it ran from roughly 1995 to 2001. Everyone, especially investors, went dot-com crazy. I mean, you could be selling the most basic thing, right? Like furniture. But if you call the company furniture.com, you could raise venture capital. And hey, that actually happened. A company called Furniture.com out of Massachusetts raised $27 million from VC investors before it went belly up and laid off all its employees. The NASDAQ stock market went crazy, climbing from under 1000 in 1995 to over 5000 in 2000. That's a five-fold increase in five years. But bubbles burst always. And even though Chris may not have thought of himself as an internet investor, like most people, he relied on a broker to manage his portfolio. And when the dot-com bubble burst, it toppled the dominoes in other markets as well. I felt stupid because, you know, I'd risen through all of these ranks and I thought I knew what was going on. And I didn't even actually understand how the stock market really worked or how money printing really worked. I was just a, 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 an idiot trundling along in the system thinking he knew what the, what the game was. And I didn't. I didn't have a clue. So let's think about this. 9-11 happened and left us all wondering what was going on. We were at war, but we didn't know with whom. Then the stock markets crashed, but it wasn't like the Black Monday crash in 1987 when the market plummeted over 24% in a single day. The largest decline ever in the Dow Jones Industrial Average in one day. No, the dot-com bubble, it, that crash was elongated. It started in 2000. And then we had 9-11 in 2001, and then the recession of 2002-2003. As I said, the NASDAQ topped 5,000 in 2000 before it plummeted to the low 3,000s later that year. But then it rose back up to crest 4,000 before starting a long and staggering decline. It was late 2002, over two years later, before it finally bottomed out. So all this time, Chris was playing the game, just like I was at the time, and he thought he was playing it right. But everything he had worked so hard for was disappearing right in front of his eyes. And even though Chris is a rational, data-driven scientist, 
his emotional reaction was the same as anyone else's. He first denied that it could be happening to him. And then he started researching. As I came out of my happy bubble and started researching, I, I went straight into anger. And that's when the mad scientist emerged. Whereas many of us just accepted market losses at the time as a normal economic cycle, Chris reacted differently. I'm a scientist by training, right? So I get curious about things. And one of the things that's a feature of mine is once I get curious enough about something, I become almost obsessive. In her 1969 book, On Death and Dying, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross introduced the concept of the five stages of grief. Now, this model postulated a series of emotions experienced by terminally ill patients. You're probably familiar with the sequence. Patients first experience denial, which gives way to anger, then bargaining, followed by depression, and finally acceptance. Naturally, Chris's first reaction was anger because he was losing a lot of money, and he associated money with success and wealth. That was his identity. Wealth was easy. That was money. Um, how much did you have? And that was, that was all I needed to know. So Chris quickly went through the stages of grief and found himself forced to accept the truth. His assets, his wealth, had greatly diminished through no fault of his own. And the scientist needed to understand why. That was sort of my wake-up moment was enlightened self-interest. Like, wait, let me figure out what's going on with, the, with these stocks. And then I, you know, I discovered all the awkward stuff you run into, which is your broker's interests and yours only accidentally align and often are misaligned. Um, that the mantra that had been beaten into me about stocks for the long haul was uh, sometimes true, sometimes not a good strategy. Uh, that a lot of the strategy I bought into as a retail sort of consumer of, of typical investment strategies, that those were all really predicated on hope. Just digging into the economy, uh, I found things in there that scared me. Quaint things by today's standards, but, you know, levels of indebtedness and underfunded entitlement programs and money printing. The more Chris uncovered, the more alarmed he became. Here he and Becca were living in a 4,000-square-foot waterfront home in Mystic, Connecticut. The neighborhood was lavish with manicured lawns, gleaming cars. It was near the end of the 2002-2003 recession, and the scars from the market collapse still burned. But Chris found himself listening to people buzz about buying condos in Florida and elsewhere. This was the early stage of the next bubble, the real estate bubble, the housing bubble. It made no sense to Chris. The country was fighting a war that cost an unfathomable amount. The economy was slugging along, and everyone was talking about buying real estate as lenders were increasingly eager to help them. As Chris began to understand the way things really worked, a dark thought emerged. Something really subversive started to creep into my thinking, which was that um, not only was the system not preservable, but maybe it wasn't even worth preserving. Because the truth is that the life I was leading and that I was living and knocking the cover off the ball, everybody from the outside in like, well, look at the advanced degrees and the big job and the high paychecks. From the inside, it really wasn't all that fulfilling and it wasn't really all that satisfying. And my epiphany where I started to decouple from my work, uh, work work in the world was, was when I realized it someday that, that if a whole ship full of Chris Martinson sank in the North Atlantic, nothing at all would happen <laughs> to the world, right? You know, my job would be seamlessly filled back in, like throwing a, you know, a lead ball into a, into soft ground. You wouldn't even notice it after about three minutes. You know, it just, it just, it felt meaningless to me. And it was, it's really, that's the deep thing that's really hard to talk about with people is that most jobs are completely unfulfilling and utterly meaningless.
so is Chris right about that? I think so. I think he might be. I mean, that's how I felt, ironically, about the same time as Chris, even though we had never met. The fact that I couldn't explain what I did in a way they'd understand to a kid or anyone in my family is a big part of what allowed me to opt out of corporate America and live the life I live today. I just didn't see the point. Of course, corporate America is where the money is, but I'd rather enjoy every day of life rather than chasing a buck and hope I can slow down and enjoy life later. The problem is that people don't know how to get out of their job to live the life they secretly desire. So they just end up leading two lives. When I give you know weekend-long seminars and people come, one of the hot topics that we talk about for probably half that time is the extent to which people describe something they call leading two lives. There's the life they think they should be leading, and then there's the one they're actually living. And they don't know how to close that gap because they can feel, and you know, they've all got the same handcuffs that you and I did. They just don't know how to step away from them. And I don't know how to give any advice around that because, hey, I just took a huge risk and jumped off and left it all behind and it worked out for me. I can't guarantee that anybody else will have that same experience. But most people like, well, you know, three more years and then my youngest child gets out of high school or four more years and then I get to the pension and I can step away or six more years and there's always something that's holding them it's a mortgage it's a it's it's a job it's something and because of that they kind of hold what they really want to be doing in abeyance and they have it parked there but they know they really should be doing something else of course that's Chris talking now today but back then he was just like everyone else a stiff in a suit so to speak making money, traveling like crazy, rarely seeing his family. But he had a huge house and a boat to show for it and a dwindling portfolio. In a way, Chris was like the astronomer who could detect impending doom far away from a celestial object on a collision course with Earth. The problem was no one else he talked to could see it. And the first person he had to convince to see things his way was his wife, Becca. Yeah. Good luck with that. It was rough. Um, I'll be honest. You know, she uh, had no idea what I was talking about, and I was talking about it in ways that were not helpful. So so let me frame it this way. Um, The kind of stuff I'm talking about, because I'm a scientist, I thought it was information. It was just information, right? Oh, here's some data on how money creation works and and indebted levels and, and things. But It wasn't really just information, it was more than that. So now, at this end of the story, I understand that humans, of which I'm one, do not make decisions based on information unless that information already conforms to an existing belief system that they're holding. And if it does, we'll gather that data all day long and say, look, I'm in support. And if it runs afoul of our belief system, though, The only way that new information can penetrate and get past that belief system is if the belief system breaks down. And if that happens, it's an emotional process. Right. So Chris is talking about those five stages of grief again. Of course, Becca was living with Chris while he was spending his nights and weekends researching how the economy worked. And as he uncovered one truth or lie after another, he'd share what he learned with Becca. The fact that the world might not be what it appeared to be was totally new to Becca, and she wasn't ready to hear it. So Chris kept telling her that a faraway asteroid was on the way, so to speak, and went as far as leaving economic papers on her pillow with a scribbled note 
read this. I went into my angry stage and that was me sharing that with my wife who's over here still living her fully invested, highly relational mother role with three young children at that point, one of whom's in diapers and and she's got a whole world around that which is very complex and I'm not just knocking gently on the door, I'm crashing in all angry like, ah, you won't believe this, right? She didn't want to hear any of it. Yeah. Okay. Here I go dating myself again. About 25 years ago, I first read John Gray's bestseller, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Gray's a relationship counselor, and the book focuses on his perception of how differently men and women communicate. Words, phrases, gestures, intonations mean one thing to men in general and something else to women in general. I'm not promoting the book, just saying I read it, and it was a big deal back then. Actually, I read the book because I was working with so many women in corporate America that I thought it would be interesting. The book is written in generalities, of course, but sometimes generalities exist for a reason. The fact is that Chris and Becca weren't speaking the same language, so they couldn't have a sensible conversation. This happens a lot in the world of self-reliance, prepping, and homesteading. One person sees the need for change, to prepare, to become more resilient, while the other thinks it's nonsense. Becca thought Chris was really angry and overreacting. As he ranted about the Federal Reserve and peak oil, Becca had her hands full changing diapers and nursing babies. So it took her a while before she could finally absorb all the research Chris had shown her. My breakthrough with my wife then was to finally shift my tone and to approach her one day and say, hey, um, you don't have to necessarily share this point of view with me, but because we're together in life, it, this would this is important for me. And so what I'd like you to do is, is just look at this uh, information that I've got, because when I look through this lens this way, I come to some conclusions that we maybe want to be thinking about doing things differently. And I'd love to for us to be on the same page with that. Um, but if you see it differently, then you see it differently. So as soon as I remove the requirement that not only she looked through this lens, but then she shares that with me, because now we're going to see it the same. I have to back all of that off and just say, here's some stuff. And, and guess what? If she hadn't been ready at that point in time, she wouldn't have been ready. All of a sudden, Chris and Becca were a team and started seeing things the same way. No longer did they look at the McMansions in their neighborhood and see only pristine lawns. Now they saw mortgages, huge debts, lavish toys, bought by credit cards, basically everyone living beyond their means. That's when Chris and Becca realized their life wasn't much different, and they decided to change everything about their lives. And we're going to find out about the drastic changes Chris and Becca made right after this quick break. Hey, it's Tim Young. When my wife and I moved to the country, Layman's.com was one of our first stops. That's where we found the oil lamps, canning supplies, hand crank grain mills, wood cooking stoves, even the emergency supplies that we depend on. Founded in the 1950s, Lehman started as a hardware store serving the Amish in Kidron, Ohio. Today, Lehman specializes in practical, non-electric goods that will help you live the simpler life you're craving. So even if you work in the city, you can still be a modern homesteader. And Lehman's has the nostalgic and practical home decor and kitchen appliances you're looking for. So whether you're looking for time-tested farm and garden tools or off-grid stove and appliances, Layman's has the high-quality products that every farmer, modern homesteader, and prepared person needs. Layman's for a simpler life. Find them at layman's.com. That's L-E-H-M-A-N-S dot com.
We're back with the story of Chris Martinson, the mad scientist, or should I say the scientist who became mad when he learned how the world around us really worked. So Chris and his wife Becca decided to opt out of corporate America and go full throttle by changing everything. We were both thrilled to step away from that life. She felt she was stepping towards something. We started building that other thing. You know, we changed everything, right? We started homeschooling our kids. Uh, all of our former friends, air quotes there, they were really more acquaintances. They all sort of fell off and, and we had started forming new circles of contacts and connections that are really deep and rich in our area. Uh, you know, so what we did for income, uh, schooling, friends, everything you could possibly change, we shifted. So the Martinsons embarked on not necessarily a simpler lifestyle, but a more resilient one. One where they felt more in control of all aspects of their lives. And with a house sold, they needed a place to live. We sell our house and we move to and start renting up in, in rural Massachusetts. It was another pretty much two years uh, that I continued to you know, do my, my job at SEIC. And it was uh, close to July of 2005 when, when I finally um, you know, parted ways. Chris did what many people do when they opt out of the rat race by keeping his paycheck for a while. That allowed him to end things the right way with his employer to not burn any bridges while getting his family set up in their new life. And it made perfect sense that Chris and Becca rented a property instead of buying because all of his research had led Chris to believe that a real estate collapse was on the horizon. That's how I supported myself during that period of no earnings was uh, I was playing the markets pretty heavily and I was deeply short the housing uh, industry at that point in all its glory. I get it. So why overpay for a house when you can wait for the correction then buy at the bottom, right? Turns out, of course, Chris was right. So when the time was right, they bought the property and held a real asset, mortgage-free. It continued the transformation of Chris and Becca converting their possessions into real assets, things they could see, touch, and that could either sustain their lives or were real assets they could understand, like precious metals. My first purchases were in uh, late 2001, and I remember because... Gold was just under 300 an ounce and silver was 453 an ounce. I remember the number exactly. Um, and uh, that was like the first purchase. And then what happened was we sold our house in, in 2003 and we had a, um, a, a fairly significant gain. And my wife and I are both like, we didn't like at that point, we're like, no, we're not putting this in the stock market. And what should we do with it? And I, I just literally was like a shrug decision. Like, well, what if we just bought gold and silver? And she's like, okay. Uh, so, so that was... That was the decision, and the reason I did that was I knew that gold at that point, even that far back, I knew that it had one in, endearing quality to me, which was that it was a monetary asset that was the only one I could identify that was not simultaneously somebody else's liability, assuming I held it in my hot little hands. What Chris is talking about is counterparty risk. It's a simple concept that's not well understood and virtually never discussed. Counterparty risk boils down to whether there's a counterparty who will live up to their contractual obligations. Chris found out the hard way what this meant when he thought his portfolio was worth a specific amount, in dollars, of course, only to watch it become worth 40% less. In a way, he may have been lucky because equity stakes can become completely worthless, as the investors in Furniture.com can attest. And while most Americans never stop to contemplate that the dollar could actually diminish in value, the truth is it's a piece of paper. 
and a dollar bill is the same size and weight as a hundred dollar bill. For that reason, some people are fond of precious metals such as gold and silver. They believe there is no counterparty risk because the gold can't default. It's a real hard asset and will remain a real hard asset. Or at least that's the thinking. But even though I'm a fan of holding precious metals, the truth is that gold is only worth what another party says it is. In that sense, it's the same with a dollar. But the Fed can print more money out of thin air or create an illusion of prosperity by suppressing interest rates. This creates risk that the dollar could one day collapse, just as other currencies have done in the past. But while pretty much everyone has a dollar in their pocket, gold isn't an asset that many people are used to holding. People who don't like gold, when you say, yeah, I know a lot of people don't like gold, almost uniquely, you're saying Americans. Because we have the unfortunate thing of living in a country here where anti-gold marketing is 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 projected at us constantly. You don't get that same level of, of gold hostility when you're in India or you're in China or even in Europe. Uh, it, it's totally different reporting about that. But here you have lots of people talking about, you know, well, gold, it doesn't pay a dividend and you can't eat it. And it's a barbarous relic and uh, on and on and on and on. And I just don't. Th- so the whole rest of the world is on a gold accumulation phase at this point in time. I'm not... You know, I was a day trader for a while. Mm, I kind of stink at it. I'm much better swing trader. Um, and so here's the thing. We're in a really long disruptive sweep of history. And so I fully believe that what you want to do is understand value very intimately, not value priced in dollars, but value on a different dimension, what's really actually valuable, and then position yourself and then hang on. Uh, so that's what I've been doing for a while. And my personal metric is when I can trade gold for an acre of productive land. I will begin making those swaps. And we're not that far off right now. Gold doubles in price. I can start doing that in my area. And I'll do that. And I'll start swapping that out. Because ultimately, I don't want a big or smallish pile of gold. I want I want land. I want productive enterprises. I want means of production. I want real value. Precious metals is one of those lines in the sand for a lot of people. On the one side is the staunch supporters. On the other side is those who say, as Chris said, it's a barbarous relic that pays no dividends. The thing that confuses a lot of people is that gold is not money. Money is only what two parties agree it is. And in this country, the dollar is money. Rather, gold is an asset, an asset that you can hold in your hands. And to use the homesteading nomenclature, You don't generally want to have all your eggs in one basket. Yet, that's what Chris found out he had unknowingly done with his portfolio. Even if he held both stocks and bonds, they were overwhelmingly tied to the fate of the U.S. economy and dollar. And while gold is shiny and all that, most astute investors don't care whether they hold it in the end or not. They hold it as a way to store value until it makes sense to trade it for something else like productive farmland or business or rental properties, something that can generate income. So when you think about it that way, there's no reason to shout at the person on the other side of the line in the sand. The question is, what assets should you hold that can produce the most value in the long term? Whether your preference is gold, dollars, stock, bonds, lands, or Cheerios, you'll probably agree that it makes sense to have some diversification. Chris's goal is to achieve real wealth, 
something he defines quite differently today than he did back in 2001. Today, wealth is a much broader category for me. And, um, and Adam Taggart and I wrote a book called Prosper, and we borrowed a set of ideas from permaculture around the idea that uh, there are multiple forms of capital out there. And, and so we've got eight that we like. And so wealth to me now is, it, it, you know, different forms of capital can exist out there. And, and we organize around these eight forms. And I'm constantly figuring out how I can build all of those eight forms up because none are so poor as those who only have money. Um, and so uh, there, there are all these forms of capital. You can build those up. But real wealth is not money. Money is a claim on wealth. And debt is a claim on future money. Simple but really powerful concepts for people who conflate and confuse wealth with money. You're going to be disappointed just like I was disappointed in 2001. Hey, where did 40% of my wealth go? Poof. Real wealth doesn't go poof. Real wealth is the primary sources of wealth, which is you know rich farmlands and thick stands of timber and and ore bodies and all that. And secondary wealth are the means of production. It's it's the the things that you know the factories, the people, the know how, the skills that convert primary wealth into secondary wealth. Uh, tertiary wealth is just that third order stuff. It's it's you know it's derivative stocks, bonds, currencies. They're claims on real wealth. So in this story, I, so many claims have been built up and, you know, from 2007 to now, the world has added about minimum of 60 trillion in additional debt, but maybe as much as 80 trillion, depending on numbers you believe, but it doesn't matter. We basically went from 150 trillion to over 200 trillion in debt uh, worldwide. And that's just debt, not including unfunded liabilities, you know, much bigger numbers when we add those in. Those are all claims though that are gonna have to get repudiated in some way. History's very complete about this. Here's where, again, you know, the, the optimistic doomer comes out. I'm like, eh, that sounds like a bummer, right? But it's just math and it's gonna happen. So if it's gonna happen, the only question you need to resolve for yourself is which side of the line do I wanna be on? Because all that wealth, when it gets repudiated, is gonna have losers, capital L losers attached to it. But there's gonna be an equal number of winners on the other side. That's the part our media never talks about. They'll say, oh my God, Chris, we're so sorry. 40% of your stock holdings went away. Want to care to play again? You know, like, oh, it just went away. It didn't just go away. It got transferred. That's the thing most people don't understand. Now I get that. So for me, you know, to have some money in tertiary wealth, of course, that's the game. There's a system. I have to have some in that because, you know, if I don't have money, I can't pay taxes. And I find out I was actually renting the house I own from my local government. Oops. Right. Uh, so, but you have to have some, but, but really don't confuse money with wealth and everything you can do to build up your actual sources of wealth is a really important thing to be doing now. Man, Chris has really done a 180 from his corporate days, right? When he viewed wealth simply as how much money he had in the bank, money measured solely in U.S. dollars. Today, Chris thinks those dollars are worth dirt. So he literally trades them for dirt. When this global credit bubble bursts, and it will, and I don't, again, I don't know, is it tonight or is it 10 years from now? I don't know. But when it does, it's going to be really painful, really disruptive. And the extent to which, you know, you have that freezer full of, of survival seeds, you're going to be really disappointed if you hadn't converted some of your financial wealth into living wealth, living capital on your property, which I do by having trucks roll up my driveway, give them cash, 
and they drop things like topsoil and rock dust and uh, the clay I need to mend my, my sandy soils. That's real wealth. Chris very much believes that major structural changes to the economy are on the horizon, and those changes will have a ripple effect that extend far beyond what we think of as the economy, to include pretty much everything that affects our day-to-day lives, where and how we get electricity, gasoline, clean water, even healthcare and police protection, and access to food, depending on how things unfold. Uh, we'll hit that wall, and a lot of people are going to die from starvation. Man, I'm not sure Chris gets invited to a lot of parties. But I get what he means, and the profound consequences of what Chris believes is what drove Chris to change his life so drastically. I mean, he could have just stayed put in his old corporate job and big waterfront home like pretty much everyone else does. But he sold everything, repositioned his assets in more tangible holdings like precious metals and dirt, and the mad scientist became resilient. Part homesteader, part prepper, and part entrepreneur with a brand he and Adam created at PeakProsperity.com, where they have a rabid following of subscribers who look to Chris for insights and updates on the looming crisis. But the entrepreneur in Chris is fueled by passion. It didn't start at all with a business plan. It started simply with a blog. I gave up that job and I lost that paycheck and I started a blog. I mean, I really, I'd, I'd love to tell you I had this great business plan. I didn't. I had a, I had an obsession. I had a passion. I had something I cared deeply about. He cared so deeply about it that back in 2005, he began trying to get others to see the light because this belief pretty much isolated Chris and Becca. At a time when the stock market was rising again and everyone was becoming a house flipper, very few people took the time to look underneath the rug to see what Chris had seen. So Chris developed a series of PowerPoint slides and began showing them to people. Friends in their living rooms, business groups, church gatherings, anyone who would give him an audience. Chris would rant about monetary creation in the Federal Reserve as Becca stood nearby to lasso him in if the rant lost the audience, which it frequently did. I mean, who wants to hear that stuff when they see the economy humming right along? The audience just wasn't ready to hear his message early on. When I'm trying to talk to people about this, when I get a hard no from somebody, right? Oh, if this, if, you know, if this was going to happen, it would have happened already. If Wait, if this was really as important as you say, I wouldn't be hearing it from you, right? Or whatever the, the rejection is, I can just walk away from that now. It doesn't impact me. They're not ready. So I plant a seed and I wait, and it may never germinate. Undeterred, Chris kept talking, giving his presentation to groups from 2005 through 2007. His goal was to inform and help people, to inspire them to change their way of lives for the better. But the scientist in him failed to consider the emotional impact his data had on the audience. And it turns out many of them liked their way of life just fine, thank you. As Chris found out after one Rotary Club talk when an enraged realtor chased him to his car. I was at a Rotary Club uh, breakfast and I was used to this dynamic, which is I'll be up there and I'm starting to sort of, you know, dance through this, you know, bunch of data and some charts and stuff. But the conclusion is this is unsustainable. And this was in 2007. So the housing bubble still in full swing. And I was used to this other dynamic, which was some heads are nodding. And then there's some blank stares out there. And those are the people I'm actually trying to reach. But then there are the people with their arms folded, you know, and little frowny faces. Well, there were a couple of couple of guys at a realtor table and they were really unhappy because at that point I was I was really hot on the tails of the housing bubble. And I was talking how, how I was actively um, working against them. And in the sense that, you know, uh, people would say, well, what do you 
what are you doing? And I said, well, uh, I'm short a bunch of mortgage insurers. I'm short a bunch of home builders at this point in time. As those go down, I'm going to double down. So these two guys were really frowning. And then, you know, the thing is over and there's, you know, people coming up who want to talk to me. So I leave and, and this guy just follows me out and he was angry uh, at me and his basic accusation to paraphrase it was you're going to be the one who wrecks all this by saying that stuff so don't do it <laughs> human emotions a funny thing right especially when you challenge someone's belief system i mean chris is sharing data and research that forced him to see the world unfold in a way that would basically shatter the existing paradigm so the logical thing is to agree or disagree but people aren't logical when it comes to money. The realtor's reaction was to blame the whole collapsing house of cards on Chris just because he was telling people it would collapse. Illogical, right? But it still hurts when you're passionately sharing a message you believe in to audience who, in part, ridicule you, even threaten you with their body language and words. You got to have thick skin, but this is where it's good to be a scientist. I'm not saying a data-driven scientist like Chris doesn't have emotions or doesn't care what people think because he's a human and most certainly does. But the way Chris's mind works is the data come first. It's their story, the data, not his. He's just a guy reading it, or at least that's how I figure it. So he goes on undeterred and keeps giving those talks. As he does, more and more heads nod because, let's face it, even those who enjoyed the write-up in the so-called housing bubble knew it was not sustainable. That's why the realtor lashed out. He knew the truth, and like the four-year-old at Disney World, he just didn't want that ride to end. I was just going around with a really awful deck of PowerPoint slides that I was showing to people in church basements and haranguing friends and family. I was still in my, I didn't quite have the whole um, not communicate this in a in a somewhat angry join me over here phase. So I, I gathered this beautiful little little gathering of angry people. It was awesome. You know, that's what happens when you when you say join me in my anger. All the angry people are like, yeah, sign me up. So yeah, it's great. And then I got the insight. I was like, I don't want to preach to the choir anymore. This has to go more broadly. There was one audience member of one of the talks I was giving who who had a lot of experience in building websites. Um, and uh, raised his hand and said, you really need to get this out on, on a website. I had no clue how I was going to take what was ultimately about 16 hours of presentation material and condense it down into something that could be seen online. That audience member who raised his hand and told Chris to create a website was Alejandro Levins. Back in the 90s, Levin co-founded SF Interactive, a first-mover digital marketing agency. So he knew a thing or two about both branding and technology and worked as a strategic marketing consultant, conveniently enough, near where Chris had moved in Western Massachusetts. So in the days following the lecture, Levin's kept mulling over how to take Chris's message to the masses. So when he met with Chris shortly thereafter, he presented a flowchart showing how Chris could brand himself as a one-man think tank of sorts and offer his services to local governments and financial institutions. Chris's aim would be to help them insulate themselves from what Chris believed was a looming crisis in energy, the environment, and the economy. But Chris wanted to reach everyone, not just governments and financial institutions. So he and Levins began the massive undertaking of converting the PowerPoint decks to web-hosted video tutorials. And that's how the crash course was born. That started to become the crash course 
and I started, the first chapter came out in mm, somewhere around May of 2008, and the last chapter came out in October of 2008 of the original Crash Course, and, and of course the timing was pretty good. Yeah, the timing was great if you were trying to explain to people why the economy was crashing. In short order, the stock markets dropped 50%, and all those people who bought homes with zero down, well... Foreclosure rates hit all-time highs, meaning that people lost their homes and lending institutions went under. It led to massive government bailouts and the introduction of too big to fail into our vocabulary. So it was a bad time for millions of people. But remember, when Chris said the only way you can penetrate and get past a person's belief system is if the belief system breaks down, well... The housing and stock market collapse, government bailouts, and skyrocketing unemployment, that all combined to change a lot of people's faith in the system. It shattered their belief system. And their minds were now fertile grounds for anyone who could explain to them what was happening and why. And in stepped Chris with his crash course videos getting tons of views on YouTube, calmly promulgating pending cataclysmic changes as only a scientist can. Listen to this. This is the intro to Chris's very first video on YouTube about the crash course. I think it's very important to distinguish between facts, opinions, and beliefs. So I'm going to try very hard to be crystal clear when I am presenting facts versus stating opinion or communicating my beliefs. So let me be right up front about this. I hold three beliefs, which I'm going to share with you, and then spend the rest of our time showing you how I got to these beliefs. The first is that the next 20 years are going to be completely unlike the last 20 years. And why is this important? Because we tend to base our view of the future on our most recent experience. Yep, that's Chris that's calmly telling viewers that the world they know will come crashing to an end. Completely void of emotion, right? Just matter-of-factly, hey man, this is just the way it is. We're all fated to live in whatever time we're born into, and so sometimes those are really calm periods, and sometimes it's World War I or whatever happens. But even though he delivers something of a doomsday message, Chris firmly believes we each have the power to insulate ourselves so that we can enjoy life today. In other words, it's not all up to fate. I do what I do because, like, hey, you can both prepare for these futures that might be coming and make your life better today, and... Everything I do is in service of being more connected and more alive today. Now, if you can do that and be more prepared for certain things in the future, I don't understand where the lose is in this story. To me, it's win, win, win. But still, my culture says you're nuts if you prepare for anything. Of course, as I'm recording this, Hurricane Matthew is closing in on Florida. I'm looking at bare shells on television and... Once again, the prepper in me is astonished that people who live in that environment aren't already prepared. So Chris is right. Our culture says you're nuts if you prepare and lop us into a category of fringe lunatics. Chris said earlier that the scientist in him causes him to be obsessive if he gets curious enough about something. So he's been obsessively changing his life and sharing his message for over a decade now. Chris and I have very different backgrounds, but there's so much of his story I can relate to. He was nature boy as a child. And while, yes, I did hide all those beers in the creek during some golf matches, I also wrote for Foxfire Magazine in my high school and spent my non-golfing time hunting and fishing. And Chris and I both went the corporate America route, each rising through the ranks, earning good money, and buying all the trappings that marketers pushed in front of us, like boats and exotic travel. But we each opted out of all that and both did it at the top of our game so to speak 
No one pushed us. Rather, something inside called to each of us. And when it did, we had no choice. We just had to go. That process of creating the crash course, I now realize, was a um, a fit of inspiration. It was an idea that came to me, and I really didn't have any choice about what I was going to do about it. It was coming through me. I really, Tim, I look back on the crash course and go, "Who who created that?" I don't. I mean, it just. It was one of those moments where I've read about now from other people who have deeply creative processes are like, I just got taken over and it happened, right? There was an element of that for me. And that's how it was for me anytime I started a business and definitely when I up and traded in my home on a golf course for 100 acres of farmland in the absolute middle of nowhere in rural Georgia. But Chris chose a very different location. Rural, yes but rural by Massachusetts standards, which has a much higher population density than where I moved when I opted out. But Chris and Becca had specific criteria of what they were looking for. I had this huge criteria checklist. Like I wanted good soil, like non-negotiable. I needed land. I, I thought I needed 100 acres or 20 or I didn't know. I had land. I wanted land. So I, I was still thinking sort of survivally around all of this. And I was thinking, you know, I wanted to be um, this nice mix of of rural, so there was plenty of land, but also urban enough that that you know you didn't have to drive thirty minutes to get to a play date or to a good restaurant or something like that. In other words, he wanted the best of both worlds. He wanted productive land in a relatively rural setting, but not so rural that he couldn't enjoy civil amenities like a good restaurant. I mean, that sounds great, and I think a lot of people would want that. But I find people divide into one of two value camps. They value urban convenience which provides restaurants and social activities for children, like playdates, and they're willing to sacrifice privacy and population density. Or they value preparedness and want isolation and low population density and are willing to sacrifice urban convenience. In that regard, Chris and I took different routes. While, sure, yeah, I'd love there to be a Starbucks and sushi restaurant close by, I'd rather live where I'm more isolated and drive an hour for those things. But remember, Chris and Becca committed to homeschooling, and many homeschoolers want to be around like-minded people and conveniences. Becca was looking for the community that she wanted, and so her criteria, the way she wanted to select, was when we were living in Mystic, she had worked for a couple of years with a group of people that were trying to bring a cooperative store into fruition. And so, you know, you sit down with a bunch of people and, you know, it's all volunteers and where's the money come from and who's driving. And it was enough effort that she said, wow, anybody that's got a cooperative store up and functioning has already gone through the community learning curve, right? So uh, she was looking for cooperative stores. And it turned out that this region that we're in right now, which is the Pioneer Valley, um, there's a lot of cooperative stores. There's one in Northampton. There's one in Amherst. There's one in Greenfield. There's one in Brattleboro. So this is where we started looking. There was a very strong homeschooling group up here. As your listeners know, there's different flavors of homeschooling ranging from very religious to unschooling to whatever. And and so the flavor we liked, which was sort of fairly structured, but still, um, you know, your uh, homeschooling. There was a big chunk of that going on here. So they're happily settled there now in Massachusetts, but many die hard preppers wouldn't be because they'd be worried about security and defending themselves if something really bad happens, as Chris himself sometimes predicts it will. Let's be clear, to really have a, a defensible community, that community has to be based on real trust. So it's not it, it's not even just 
you know, a couple of guys get around and go, oh yeah, let's, we'll have some guns. And if time comes, you know, we got each other's back, right? You got some real prep work to do before that point in time to really know that you can trust each other and what the agreements are and, and what's really at play. Uh, I started a, a men's group here uh, a number of years ago around that organizing principle of resilience. And part of that was I wanted to solve this one problem for myself deep down, which was if I'm traveling and I'm in Hong Kong and the shit hits the fan, who's watching out for my family, right? How does that how does that play out, right? So that was a thought process I had. And of course, it's over year, over the years, it's morphed into something far more than that. And it's become um, really a very deep source of support for myself. And these are people I know really, really well and intimately. And and uh, yeah, if, if push comes to shove, we will then have the tools to not only know how to circle the wagons, but um, listen, you know, you circle the wagons on Tuesday and by Thursday you're, you're all bored and living too close to each other and you have to learn how to work all that stuff out. So knowing knowing uh, what the emotional processes are of, of what's really at stake and what this is likely to be like, which will be, you know, equal parts boredom and terror if it, under one set of circumstances, that, that requires a, a level of, of living together, and I'm going to use this word carefully, of intimacy. That's that's very different from what we have in our normal nuclear separated family lifestyles. Uh, and, and so my invitation to people is uh, you need to begin working on that stuff sooner than later. It's hard work, this simple life, this life of actively and purposefully taking responsibility for your life. It isn't just about growing food and making self-sufficient income. It's also thinking long and hard about how to protect your family should basic services like rule of law break down. No wonder the overwhelming majority of people don't want to think about this stuff. It's much easier just to keep your head in the sand and go about life as you know it and hope that things stay the same. But hope is not only a bad strategy, it can be a deadly one. I describe many of the deadly consequences of normalcy bias in my book, Start Prepping, if you'd like to see what can happen to people when crisis strikes. As for Chris and Becca, the changes for them have been great, and they're enjoying this real life far more than the superficial life they left behind. I love being connected and alive. I'm in better shape today than I was even 10 years ago. I love how I, all of these changes in my life have come together to make today a really amazing place for me to be. And I'm happy and I'm good. So Chris and Becca are settled and feeling more resilient, right? I mean, they grow a lot of their food, homeschool their children. So why is he still so determined to get his message out there to the masses? Well, in part, it has to do with what he hears, the alarming messages he hears from some of his consulting clients. I have in the good fortune of interacting with people who run giant hedge funds, giant pensions, uh, family offices. These are some of the people I know who are most concerned, who have, for lack of a better term, a very, very elaborate uh, uh, escape plan in place that includes you know, four different ways to transport themselves to a, a very remote property that's completely tricked out. Uh, so there are, you know, the people who are most deeply understanding of the system are some of the most worried people, but they're not scared, panicky worried. They're like, no, nah, it's beyond worry. It's like certain that this thing blows up someday. So they have a plan around it, just like any prudent person would. That's a scary thought and maybe enough by itself to get you to consider opting out. But fear isn't the reason I fled the rat race. For me, it was hope. 
the hope that I could live freely without the artificial constraints of society demanding that I have a normal job and live just like everyone else. What I lost by opting out was, I guess, an identity, at least an identity the way that everyone else thinks about it. I'm hard-pressed to tell someone what I do since I don't have a title, and they rarely accept the answer that I'm a homesteader. Surely there must be something more, right? So I lost that identity, but what I gained was freedom and control over my life, and you can't put a price on that, not even in gold. When I stepped out of our culture and stepped away from the jobs and the titles and the money and all of that and looked at it from the outside looking in, I can tell you that it's, I'm so glad I did that because I gained control over my life. I suddenly had all these existential insights like, oh, this thing isn't a dress rehearsal. Hey, maybe, maybe I'm the one living my life and I should live it for me uh, and other things like that. And, and, and ultimately my critique is that a lot of our culture is really, um, soul destroying, not really fulfilling and deadening. And people adapt to that by numbing themselves out. And the way they um, get over their numbness is they have to go and have the experience of life sold back to them, but at high volume, like they go to Vegas. And you know, you need all that stimulation and all the neon lights and the blinking and the excitement and the possibility of losing money to feel alive again and go, oh, that's I had the best time. I felt so alive there. And my learning is that you can feel that alive out in your garden in the morning every day. Before we wrap up and I give you my three key takeaways from this segment, let me remind you that the show notes from this episode are available on my website, theselfsufficientlife.com. There's also a complete transcript of this episode if you'd like to read it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And please, please take just a second to leave a review. It helps with the rankings and allows others to learn about a self-sufficient life. Check out what Chris and his partner Adam are doing at peakprosperity.com. You can find loads of free content, but the real insights are shared with their subscribers. So consider becoming a member. And don't forget to check out Chris and Adam's latest book, Prosper. There's a link to all this in the show notes at theselfsufficientlife.com slash SSL9. Okay, here we go. My three key takeaways from Chris Martinson's story. The first is understand why people are naturally resistant to change and learn new approaches when trying to get your partner to embrace change. Chris talked a lot about this, both in terms of getting Becca to see the world the way he did and to get his audience to do the same. It took him years to understand, hey, you can't just walk in with a set of data to change a person's belief system. They at least need to have some doubt in that system. Look, here's what I mean. If you go to your spouse and say, out of the blue, hey, honey, let's quit our jobs and move to the country, you're probably going to get a defense. We all have a devil's advocate in us, and it's natural to argue against what you're proposing. But if you spend time in advance of that conversation discussing what's missing from your lives and what you don't enjoy doing, what you do enjoy doing, then you'll be cultivating the mind to receive the message when you're ready to deliver it. So if you want to make a drastic change in your life and need someone else to agree to it, don't think it will be a one-time or a quick conversation. It won't. Plan for it the way a farmer would plan to harvest a crop. Get the soil ready well before you plant the seed. Okay, moving on. Takeaway number two. Once you do convince your partner, choose your location carefully. 
Now, there's no right answer here. You heard Chris say that he and Becca value community. I get that, and they're really happy with that choice. My wife Liz and I went a different route. We went rural and often wish we were more rural. We love each other's company, and quite frankly, we'd be pretty content if the only person we ever saw was each other. If your goal is to move out of the rat race, you can take baby steps by moving to an urban location with a big lot where you do a bit of homesteading. Or you can go to the next level, as Chris did, by finding a small rural town, but definitely a town with people and things. Or you can go as isolated as you want. If you're not sure, take vacations to those type of locales. It doesn't have to be expensive. You can camp. Just go see what you like. There's a blog post on my website at theselfsufficientlife.com that describes 23 questions you should ask before buying rural property. If you'd like some help, just go to theselfsufficientlife.com and look under the blog. Okay, here you go. Final takeaway. And look, this is just my opinion now. I am no financial planner or anything like that. So you do your own research. But my view is that you should read what Chris and others have to say about owning precious metals as an asset. It doesn't have to be much. 10% of your holdings may be fine for you. I don't know. But what I'm saying is that it's risky to hold all of one's asset in one category. Most people have a little bit of money, maybe some stocks and some bonds in a portfolio or 401k. But that's all they own. They don't own their homes. Most don't own their cars. And almost no one owns precious metals. But I'm in Chris's camp on this one, and our belief is in owning some precious metals and other assets, such as land, equipment, like a tractor, and yes, even bullets, supplies, and lots of stored food. So far on Self-Sufficient Life, you've heard many stories of people who have radically changed their lives so that they could become more resilient, more free. Chris and Becca are an inspiring story, not only because of the work Chris does in trying to inform and inspire others over at peakprosperity.com, but also because of their radical transformation. So learn from them and just do what they did by opting out today. Alarm wakes me up and I'm right out the door. Fighting traffic in a car that I'm still paying for A cup of coffee, four dollars gone They stick me in a cubicle And now I'm somebody's pawn The concrete jungles all around me There's gotta be a better way I'm sick and tired of staring at a screen all day While strangers teach and watch my children play I'm sick and tired of stressing over which bills to pay Not gonna live my life that way I'm opting out today Oh, I'm opting out today. They hand me a paycheck so I can pay all I owe. The kids wanna play.